contains a very sobering warning. It's a warning we need because the other side of that warning is the glorious promise we have for all who do not doubt, who do not rebel against the Lord, but instead who rely entirely on Him through Jesus, His Son. And that's what we see in Exodus 17. We're going to look at the first seven verses of Exodus 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Congregation of God beloved in Christ, this passage recounts the fourth time since God's people left the brickyards of Egypt, the fourth time that they grumbled and complained against the Lord. Truly, it's a testimony to Israel's hard-heartedness and rebellion, but it's also more than that. To be sure, Israel is showing the hard-heartedness that comes naturally to the offspring of Abraham, which resided in them also despite the fact that they were the people of God. But in the response of Moses and then of God himself, we see something more here. We see actually a few lessons that show us, first of all, in a cautionary sense, how we ought to respond to the trials that God ordains to set before us. But even more than that, we see the mercy of God toward those who are rebellious, the mercy of God toward those who are absolutely and entirely undeserving in providing exactly what they need and doing so in a manner that shows that He is both the God of justice and the God of grace. And so what we see here is that God, who is our rock, the one on whom we stand, the one to whom we look, God, our rock, graciously grants water for his hard-hearted people. That's our theme. And the first thing we see as we dive into that theme is Israel's rebellious demand. Israel's rebellious demand. Again, notice this is the fourth time They've grumbled as they left Egypt, 
heading toward the Red Sea, they noticed Pharaoh's army behind them and they grumbled. They complained against Moses. Then God delivered them with an amazing, miraculous deliverance through the sea. But barely had their feet dried. Barely had the sea receded into the distance. Then they began complaining about the lack of water and then again about the lack of food. Now, having been fed with bread from heaven, Israel has departed from the wilderness of sin. They're heading deeper into the wilderness. To Israel, it may have even seemed that they were just wandering. But Moses assures us they were traveling according to the command of the Lord. In other words, it wasn't Moses but God who was leading the people. It wasn't Moses who brought them to this place, but God whom Moses was following. And so they come to Rephidim. Now, we're not exactly positive where that was. We know that it was, it was very close to Horeb, to Mount Sinai, which is where the people would camp for quite some time. But what we know about Rephidim is that there was there no water. And that was a problem. Remember, we've got at minimum a million people here, likely twice that amount, plus all of their livestock. There's no way they could carry all of the water that this great crowd needed. And here they are at a place to camp where there's none. So when they found that there was none, this was a crisis to the people of Israel. And therefore, verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Now when it says they quarreled, that's a forceful word. That's the word you would use if you were describing your intention to file a lawsuit against someone. It's an anger that indicates you're going to take some sort of action. But it was in their mind a reasonable anger. After all, they're following Moses wherever he leads them. And it's evident that the place where he has stopped them has no water. And they need water. Their canteens are empty. But Moses answers them with a reality check. First of all, he says, what are you doing? How do you expect me to get you water? Why are you complaining against me? And moreover, he points out, you're testing the Lord because you're not really following me. There's that big pillar of cloud and of fire. That's what I'm following, and that's what you're following. You are following God. If you complain about where you're camped, you're really complaining against the Lord. Now listen, Israel should have been humbled by Moses' answer. But instead they grew indignant. They resumed their grumbling, dissension spreading through the camp. Instead of honoring the man whom God set over them, instead of acknowledging the truth of what he said, they accuse him. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Now notice that. They're attributing their deliverance from Egypt to Moses, which is false, number one. Moses, it wasn't his idea. They were the ones who were crying out for deliverance. They were the ones pleading for God to lead them out. Moses was out in the wilderness shepherding his sheep when God called him back. And furthermore, it wasn't by his power. 
There is no way that Moses could have devised and carried out all of the signs that they witnessed in Egypt. There's certainly no way he could have opened the sea for them to pass through on dry land. And there is zero likelihood that he could have destroyed the entirety of Pharaoh's army by his strength. They're attributing to Moses what can only be attributed to God and at the same time depriving him of the hope that such demands. Because if he had been the one who delivered them, if it had been by his power, he would have been able to give them water. So they're attributing to Moses what they should not and thereby they are slandering God, depriving him of the glory that he deserves. And they go farther why, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock? They impute to him murderous motives. Now remember, Moses sacrificed deeply for Israel. He left a very peaceful existence of shepherding sheep out in the wilderness, not having to deal with, you know, people. And all of a sudden, not only is he dealing with all of these people, he had to face Pharaoh. A king who was not known for being reasonable. Taking his own life in his hands. And what reward does he get from the people? For whom, at God's command, he risked so much. They claim that he brought them out here simply to kill them in the wilderness. Truth be told, the accusation makes no sense. But not only that. It's wicked. Folks, Israel's words here are nothing short of rebellion. The godly response to the challenge that they here faced would have been to come before Moses and say, what do we do? Or simply, where they stood, to have bowed down to their knees and prayed for the help of the Lord. But instead... They turn on Moses, who has done so much for them. They utterly ignore God, who is the one who actually delivered them. And they rebel, demonstrating that they have hearts of stone. However, as shameful as their display is, we need to be careful that we don't cluck our tongues and shake our heads as though we are better. Sometimes we are, and if we are, it's by God's grace. But how often haven't we been tempted, at least, to do the same? Faced with difficulties, faced with trials, faced with alienation from our loved ones, faced with the reality that our elders won't let us get away with doing the easy thing, that they insist that we seek reconciliation with that person who has harmed us, that they hold us to God's standards for how we run our businesses, we're tempted to moan and grumble and complain against them when they're really just leading us to follow the Lord. Or we're tempted to complain against the leaders of our land when they're just dealing with the circumstances that God has ordained. Or we're tempted to grumble against our parents when they're simply seeking to lead us to grow up in a godly manner. The rebellion that we see in Israel, it's ugly. But it's not something with which we are unfamiliar. 
But if we give in to that temptation, beloved, it is God against whom we grumble. And we need to know that. He is the one who called and who equips and who uses the leaders he set over us in the church. He is the one also who sets over us our leaders in society, sometimes to punish us, other times to richly bless us, but always at his hand. And he's the one who gave you those particular parents with all of their insight and all of their wisdom and all of their flaws. And he is the one who will use those leaders whom he has set over us in order to bless us if we receive them by faith, if we're willing to follow them when they lead us to the Lord, if we pray for God to bless and guide and strengthen them. So we see Israel's grumbling, their rebellion, and we must receive that as a warning. Do not follow them down that path of rebellion. Indeed, we ought to fervently pray that God would deliver us from that temptation. Surely Moses is tempted to answer Israel in kind. I mean, who of us would not have been tempted hearing that grumbling, seeing that evidence of ingratitude? Who of us would not be tempted to get up on a high place and say, you want to complain against me? Look at what I have to work with. And which of you could do better? Come on up. I'll be happy to hand over my staff. We'd certainly be tempted. But Moses refrains. Instead, silencing his lips toward the people, he turns to the Lord. And what we see there, the beautiful example we see there in verse 4 is Moses' meek prayer. You see, God gave Moses the wisdom to recognize he was utterly insufficient to answer this rebellion of God's people. After all, the challenge was immense. Moses tells God, they're almost ready to stone me. And the way that he says that indicates he believed that was a genuine threat. That the people were honestly looking around for stones that were just about the right size. He was in fear for his life, but not only in fear for his life. In the course of his 81 years, Moses has learned true wisdom comes only from the Lord. Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. And Moses would have wholeheartedly agreed with those words. He understood that he didn't have the wisdom to answer these people, nor did he have the strength to provide for their needs. So meekly, submissively, he falls before the Lord, revealing in doing so the faith of a true man of God. And revealing too an image of the coming Christ. You see, if Israel's accusations were true, if Moses had been leading them for his own sake, guided by his own motives, he would have answered their demands himself. He would have started looking around for a source of water. He would have been plotting out the next camp spot, seeking maybe 
maybe to meet their needs by his insights. That would have gotten him fame. That would have gotten him glory. They'd have been singing about the wisdom of Moses, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, Lord, you tell me what to do. You called me. You've brought me thus far. It's in your hands. My friends, that is precisely why Jesus came. In John 6, Jesus faced a great crowd that wanted to make him king. But he rejected that, saying in John 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. A chapter before that, we read how he said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus came to serve his heavenly Father. It was God's will that Jesus sought to do. That is nowhere more evident than as Jesus was preparing to face the cross, knowing that he would have to suffer all the wrath of God against our sin. He prayed fervently in the garden, as we read in Matthew 26. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he fell to his knees again for a second time. And he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. It was in that spirit that Moses prayed. Lord, show me your will. Reveal to me your plan, your intention, and I'll do that. Brothers and sisters, do not miss the lessons that we see in Moses' prayer. Above all else, he is showing us Christ who is the true source of our hope. Jesus is the one who perfectly submitted to God. That's where Adam failed. God said, the fruit of one tree you may not eat. And Adam refused to submit. Throughout history, God has set before mankind either by word or in his conscience. The command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Every man, woman, and child who ever has lived has known that is his obligation. And the creation itself has testified to whom this God is, whom they are to serve. And they refuse steadfastly to submit, even going so far as to make up ridiculous fictions like macroevolution in order to absolve themselves of their obligation to serve and worship the living God. We ourselves know that temptation. But Jesus came as the one who perfectly submitted, who never failed to do exactly what the Father commanded, who led the people exactly where God would have them lead, and he did so for us. Not only so that he could suffer and die for our sins, but also so that he could impute to us the perfect righteousness that for us was unattainable. That's the first thing Moses shows us here. If we are to have life, if we are to have a relationship with God, it must be through the submissive one, through Christ. And at the same time, he presents for us an example to follow. Now understand... The righteousness by which we stand before God must come from Jesus and from Jesus alone. But if we're trusting in Him truly, 
then we will begin to reflect Him. And we will seek in all things, not to do what is easy, not to do what is expedient, not to do what men say we must do, not to follow after the example of the pollsters who seek to find out what the majority of people think is wise, but to look, to search deeply into what God commands, and to do that, leaving the results to Him. That's a hard lesson, especially in our leaders. Sometimes it would be so much easier to turn a blind eye to sin rather than to call people to account for it and to turn back. So often it would be easier to just do what the crowd wants rather than saying, no, we must do what God commands. But elders, parents, we are called to set before them an image of Christ, submitting eagerly, earnestly to the Father. All of us are called to do that, no matter how hard it might seem. We must submit meekly to the Lord. And when we do, He provides exactly what we need. That's the last thing we see here, the Lord's revealing provision. Notice how He instructs Moses. Pass on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. God has a plan for him. When he hears of it, it's not going to sound reasonable, but he's to do it without question. And he's to do it with witnesses. Take the elders, take the the men whom the people recognize as leaders, that they might see that what has been done is not by your strength, but by God's. And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. That's crucial. Notice that is the staff by which God exercised His justice, by which He poured out His curse upon Egypt. And He says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Now, Horeb is Mount Sinai, right? So he's to go before the people to the mount where they're going to be remaining for some time. The place where they will hear God's law, where they will see His glory, where they will receive the commands to build the tabernacle, where they will learn what it means to live before God as His priestly covenant people. God says, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Notice what he's doing there. The people have been watching Moses ever since he returned to Egypt. They know that staff, that staff that God gave him by which he was to show that he possessed the authority of God. He was sent by God himself. When when he struck something with that staff, what happened? Kids, remember? When he struck something with that staff, Egypt, God's enemies, were cursed. He struck the waters of the Nile with the staff and the water became blood. What had been the source of their life became an image of death. He struck the dust of the land, the dirt where they grew all their crops. And when he struck it with that staff, the dust became gnats that pestered them and filled their land and made life absolutely intolerable. What had been given as a source of life 
became a curse. But now, standing not before God's enemies, but before God's people, he is to strike with that staff. And the barren rock, which was a curse, would become a source of life. Our God is the one who sends curse upon those who hate Him, but life to those who love Him. That act of striking the rock with His staff, that was an image of the cross. An instrument of cursing and death. Not just death, but of God's curse. The Bible says, He who is hanged upon a tree is cursed before God. When Jesus hung on that cross... Every Israelite knew he was an image of the curse of God against the sin of mankind. He was cursed for our sin, forsaken by God because he bore our guilt. And because he bore that curse, we have life. All who trust in him. He was crushed by the rock that we might drink of the waters of life. That is what was demonstrated to all Israel and that is what is set before us this day. Our God alone is able to take the absolute worst of the curse and turn it into the utmost blessing of life. But only for those who rely on Him. Only for those who trust in Him. And certainly he can, if, he was not, if God was not willing to spare his own beloved son, if he was willing to make him bear the curse of our sins that we might have life, will he decline to give you the water you need, the finances you need, the comfort, the healing, the help, the strength that you crave? When you seek His help and submit to Him, of course not. Those things are far less important than the eternal life without which we cannot live. The lesson of this water from the rock, brothers and sisters, is the lesson that we must trust in the Lord our God through Jesus Christ for all that we need and especially for life. Moses names the place Massah and Meribah. Massah, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. Why not name it provision? Why not name it springs of water? Because they needed to remember and we need to remember. To rebel against God is death. And that is our inclination. To reject God is destruction and that is where we naturally will go. And therefore remembering Massah, recalling Meribah, let us reject what comes natural and let us call out meekly as Moses did to the God of life and say, Lord, I submit to you. You show me where I should go, what I should do, how I should embrace your life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you.
For there is none other who can provide what we need, but you provide it with the utmost perfection. Teach us to trust in you, knowing that Jesus endured all the curse that we might enjoy all the life, and trusting that also in our lesser needs, you will provide precisely, precisely according to the need of the moment. All this we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen.